Well, good morning. It's great to see you. We're going to go to the Bible now. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Now, whenever we pick up a, bo- a book, we, we want to know what that book is about, don't we? I mean, a novel isn't about everything, and it's not about nothing. It's about a specific idea, a, a theme. It has a point. A biography isn't about everyone or just anyone. It's about a specific someone. A textbook doesn't cover the whole of school. It covers a specific subject. If, and if a book is written well, we can funnel down to the central point of the book from maybe one paragraph. The center of it all. So when we open the Bible, where do we go to find that paragraph? I've heard others put it this way. What's the most important book in the world? The Bible, of course. What's the most important book in the Bible? The book of Romans. What's the most important chapter in the book of Romans? Chapter 3. What's the most important paragraph in chapter 3 of the book of Romans of the Bible? Verses 21 through 26. So that makes our passage today the most important paragraph ever written in all of human history. Now, I know that might sound, you know, maybe too much. I mean, really? The most important paragraph? But, you know, it's actually really hard to argue against it. This paragraph holds within it the entire message of the Bible. It tells us who we are. It tells us what has happened to us. And it tells us what God has done to save us. It tells us about God. The great reformer Martin Luther said of these verses, it's the chief point in the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. So what I'm saying, I didn't make up this morning. Others have said it as well, no less than Martin Luther. So today, I just want us to to look at this central passage and think about the implications it has for us as a church. Our church is not here because we have some good ideas we'd like to explore together. We're not here because we want to do things our way in rejection of those down the road. We're not here because we're looking for a new angle or some different path. We're here because the gospel has been proclaimed and the triune God has gathered us for one mission under one Savior, for His glory in our day. We aim to be a gospel-centered church, not the only gospel-centered church in town, but certainly one of them. And we want to see one in every community in our region. The gospel must be the biggest thing in the church. Because only the gospel is big enough for the church. It's the only thing that will sustain us over the long haul. If we ever abandon the gospel as the centering point, no matter how good a thing we replace it with, we will have failed to remain faithful. And God must either bring us to repentance or shut our doors. After all, a gospel-centered church is really the only kind of church there is. A church without the gospel is something else entirely. It's a social club or a 
political action committee or a rallying point for our pet projects or our hobby horse hermeneutics. But those are all man-centered things, and they cannot last. Every man-made institution ends in tears. But the gospel ends with a party. It's good news of great joy. William Tyndale, the man who translated the Bible into English in the 16th century, a man of intense courage, facing intense opposition. Here's what he said, Evangelion, what we call the gospel, is a Greek word signifying good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. That's the gospel. I love that. That's what we're after here at Refuge Church. Deep happiness in God. What else could we want? And nothing takes us there but the gospel. We can't add to it. We can't improve upon it. We can only accept it and rejoice in it. So in the time we have today, let's just consider what it means to be a gospel-centered church from this amazing passage. Now, before we read it, let me just kind of set the stage of where we are in the Bible. Uh, the bulk of the first three chapters of Romans is, is it's actually filled with really bad news. The Apostle Paul explains how everyone is a sinner. No one is excluded from this. Those who obey and those who disobey and those who just kind of sit and watch and see what happens. All are sinners. We all inherit sin from our parents and, and then we all add our own sins on top of that. We're all guilty and accountable to God. We deserve his holy wrath. And we have no way to get around that on our own. But then, Paul takes us somewhere else. After explaining who we really are, he shows us what God has done for people like us. So let's read it now. Romans 3. Verses 21 through 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's God's word. Now, as I said, this is perhaps the greatest paragraph ever written by the human hand. So there is absolutely no way we can do justice to this paragraph in one sermon. So what I want to do today is I want us to, to just 
think through what are the applications of this truth for us as a church. We can do that in three points. The first of which is the gospel is the center of the Bible. So it's got to be our center too. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's it's hard to read the Bible and not see that a major theme is the need for obedience to God's law, right? It's just there. In fact, many people boil it down to just that, God's rule book. The law tells us what God expects and what happens if we fail to obey. It's clear, though, that God does call us to righteous living. And he doesn't leave, us up to, leave it up to us to determine what that means. He tells us. He tells us that in his law. But the problem is that we can't obey as we ought. Each one of us, in fact, have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We've all failed to do what we even know we ought to do. And so a question remains. How will we get the righteousness that God requires? If we can't attain it, but it is a requirement... Well, what do we do? Paul has an answer in verse 21. The righteousness of God, that is, God's way of righteousness, has been manifested, that is, revealed to us. It's been revealed to us apart from the law. What what does that mean? It means that our path to righteousness isn't and never could be obedience, perfect obedience to the law. We have failed. We are sinful. The law, therefore, cannot save people like us. What it does do is it shows us how far we are from the perfection that God requires. Now, that doesn't mean that the law is bad. I mean, it's from God. It's good. It's righteous. It's holy. It just means that we must, as Paul said in Galatians 3.24, see the law as our schoolmaster pushing us toward Christ. We're justified not through perfect obedience to the law, but by trusting in the one who did perfectly obey, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our righteousness, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Now, if you're reading through the first part of the book of Romans, this comes as, as quite a surprise. Uh, Paul explained how everyone had fallen short of, the, of God's holy standard. You know, reading Romans 1-3, through 3, it really just it leaves you breathless. If you haven't read it in a while, I suggest you go home and read it. It does. It just... We are left with no excuse before God. Totally exposed. And some people then go into this I don't know, self-justification mode. Well, I, I, you got to understand kind of thing. Others go into a depression. What am I going to do now? But Paul wants to take us elsewhere. He wants to take us into the heart of God for sinners. He wants to show that the gospel is, it's a glorious interruption in our lives. We're headed toward hell and we can't blame anyone but ourselves and then God breaks in. The gospel just, it interrupts our regularly scheduled activities. You know, it just derails everything in our lives. We think one thing and God comes with his amazing grace and says, now let me tell you what I'm going to do. Let me tell you my solution to your problem. 
This is the kind of thing that Martin Luther experienced in his life. Back in the 16th century, he was, he was a monk. And he was trying really hard. I, I, in fact, I'm not sure if anyone's tried harder than Martin Luther to obey everything that God commanded. He read his Bible and all he saw were laws to obey. And he looked at himself and all he could see was disobedience, was failure. He tried really hard. But he just couldn't find any freedom. I mean, who am I? How could I ever be with God? He felt condemned. He never felt forgiven. He just saw time after time just new layers of sin in his heart. Maybe that's where you are too. You know, Martin Luther would actually go to the priest and confess so often in such minutiae that the priest told him once, would you go away and come back when you have real sin to confess? <laughs> he could see it all, and he didn't like any of it. He seemed obedient, but his conscience was troubled. And then he started teaching through the book of Romans. And here's Martin Luther just going on with his life thinking, just beating himself up. I can't obey. I can't obey. But God requires it. And what does God do? He interrupts his thought pattern. He says, okay, listen to me for once. He saw with new eyes how God justifies. God didn't justify Martin Luther based on his obedience. That is Luther's obedience. God justified Martin Luther based on Christ's obedience. Upon his faith in Jesus Christ, God's only son. And when he realized that, his heart was freed. He was a changed man. He saw the Bible was not the story of God waiting on his people to get their act together, but rather the story of God coming to us in Jesus to give us the righteousness that we cannot attain on our own. In other words, he saw that the Bible is God's story about God's actions for his people. It's a story about God. God's way of righteousness wasn't in the law, though the law was good and reflected God's glory. The way of righteousness was in himself, in Christ. And Luther realized that's what the whole Bible is about. All along, God is showing our imperfection so that we'll trust His perfection. The law condemns us so that we will flee to Christ for rescue. You see, the Bible is it's, it's not basically about us. <laughs> it's so hard for us to see that, isn't it? It's not basically about us. It's basically about Jesus. It's not the story of man reaching to God, but of God coming down to man. Jesus is the hero, and his gospel is the center. And we see this everywhere, from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus is the meaning of every miracle. He's the redeemer of every rescue. He's the savior of every song. He's the promise of every prayer. He is the Christ in every crisis coming to save. We need to see that. We need to rejoice in that. We need to search for it, to dig it out, grab hold of it on every page. The Bible is about Jesus and his gospel that he came to proclaim. And when we see that, that changes everything, doesn't it? 
It changes the way, uh, even what we say to ourselves. Because now, if the Bible isn't a book basically about us, but about God and what God has done and is doing, who are we to argue with God? If the Bible isn't about us and about Jesus, when we say to ourselves, I can't be saved, Jesus says to us all, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. When we say to ourselves, woe is me, Jesus says to us, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. When we say to ourselves, I'm just too sinful, Jesus says to us, I do not deal with you according to your sins, but according to my grace. When we say, but Jesus, you don't know what it's like. Jesus says to us, oh, but I do. I can sympathize with your weaknesses and temptations. I was like you, but without sin. I can save you, though no one else can. No matter what we bring to him, he's going to win the argument. We can't win. We can only fall before him and worship him and accept the grace that he's offering. That's a gospel-centered life. That's a gospel-centered church. One where Jesus gets to set the rules because he alone is God. Where his story is the only story, where his grace rules, where his mercy reigns, where his glory dwells, what more could we want? I mean, there are a lot of things that a church could be about, but show me something else that deals with sinners the way Jesus does. That brings the dead to life, that restores every broken heart, that redeems every wounded life. Let's be people about the gospel. The main thing. Where the central story of the Bible is the central story of our life together. Where the gospel just interrupts us in the most wonderful way possible. When that's our life together, we can see yet another way the gospel changes us. Secondly, the gospel is honest with our sin. So we should be too. <laughs> you know, we, I said, we, we can't argue with Jesus. He gets the final word. But that doesn't mean that he flatters us. That doesn't mean that he overlooks our sins and failures. It means that he deals with them. You know, I think actually, though we may have arguments of we're too bad for you, Jesus, I think most of the time we probably have thoughts far too high about ourselves than we ought. Our problem isn't usually our low thoughts of ourselves. It's our high ones. What most of us need to see before we can even approach Jesus is our utter need for him. Our utter need for him. The gospel is good news. It is good news. 
but it includes bad news. Paul puts it bluntly in verses 22 and 23, for there is no distinction. If we might tend to think we're better than someone else, here's Paul to say, no, 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 no. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's so offensive to our well-put-together ideas of ourselves, isn't it? All have sinned, past tense, and fall short of the glory of God, present tense. We are all together liable to God's judgment. A proper understanding of sin is, is actually necessary for a proper understanding of the gospel. The gospel is good news, but it includes bad news. It tells us without, that without the triune God's intervention, we have no hope of heaven. We cannot obey well enough. Even if we started today and were able to somehow obey everything in the Bible, what are you going to do about your past? You failed then. The gospel makes us really honest people. Now, we live in a city that likes to look good. From our dress to our cars to our homes. I mean, we're a, we're a very Instagrammable people, aren't we? But the gospel takes the filter off. It, it shows us who we really are. And when it does, we have a choice to make in that moment. And there's really only two options. We can be impressive or we can be known. In a gospel-centered church where the risen Christ's good news is ever-present, where it is the, the, the main song that sings over us, we can actually take the risk of being known. We can trust Jesus with our sin. We can trust his people to help us find forgiveness and freedom. The gospel says that we actually, no matter what we tell ourselves, we're not impressive. And that's embarrassing. Okay, good. When we start feeling embarrassed is when we might actually know we're gaining traction with Jesus. The gospel also says, though, that though, yes, we're not impressive, we are already known deeper, far deeper than we could ever imagine. And overwhelmingly loved by Jesus Christ, our Savior. What Jesus is offering us is this circle of honesty that we can step inside of together. And when we do that, when we just trust Him, lay aside all of our own self-importance, impressiveness, our, everything that just gets in our way, and just step inside that sacred circle with Jesus. we actually become the very impressive people that we long to be. We radiate with the glory of Jesus. An important trait of, God, of a gospel-centered church is a, a culture of honesty before God and one another because there is no way for us to get inside that sacred, sacred circle without being honest 
without taking the filter off, without unmasking ourselves, with coming to Jesus with all that we really are. Total honesty is the way we grow. I mean, you know that, right? You've experienced that. When we finally come clean, we finally find now something can happen. Now my life can maybe change. When we get honest with our sins and struggles, we can actually now find help and freedom and forgiveness. And don't we all want that? Even if we found it yesterday, don't we need it again today? Don't we need it again tomorrow? Don't we know deep down that we're just not okay? Well, if we'll just admit that and come to Jesus, we'll find in Him a friend who actually understands everything you're dealing with. He knows your sins and weaknesses. You can't surprise Him. You're not going to shock Him. He knows. And the Bible tells us that he's a faithful and merciful high priest in the service of God. He is for you even when you can't be for yourself. He has covered all of your sins already on the cross. There is nothing left to be finished but for you to come to him. To lay it all before him. To receive him. So here's what Jesus is asking all of us. I, I can't find any verse that says it better than 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Who are we to argue with that? I mean, we have good arguments, maybe. Yeah, we sin, but here, here's why. But the truth is, there is no excuse good enough to explain our sinful hearts. Sin has no justification. And Jesus doesn't want to hear our sob story for why we did what we did, or thought what we thought, or so on. He's saying to us, lay it all down. You can stay in the shadows and let me bring your sin into the light because be sure he will one day, sooner or later. Or you can bring your sin into his light. And what does he do then? He hides it behind the cross. If we bring our sin into the light of Jesus, he will cleanse us. Did you hear what John said? Not from some sin. From all sin. It's not he might cleanse us. It's not one day out in the future, maybe when you get your act together, he'll cleanse us. He will cleanse us in that very moment. Maybe right now you feel as if there is no way you could go to Jesus as you are. 
And he says to you in this moment, you've never been more perfect for me. Come. Lay it all down. Come. All he's asking us to do is walk out into his light, to trust him with all of our life and to find cleansing by his blood. Don't we need the cleansing? It's there. Now, I'm not going to lie and say that doesn't feel risky. It does, doesn't it? It's risky to live inside of gospel-centered church because it means that we don't set the rules. It means that honesty is just the way we roll. It means that Jesus has the final word. We can't limit God. He can go to places in our heart that we'd be fine never entering ever again. But what God wants for us is not partial renewal, but total renewal. And you can't get there without Him messing with you. Without Him opening you up, bringing you into His light where we can't hide, but we can repent. And when we do, we find that... (laughs) See, here's the thing. We think as soon as I say who I really am, that's it. I'm alone. No one's going to get it. I'm going to be done for. But when we trust him and we step inside of his light, we find we're not alone. We have fellowship with one another. Why? Because of what Paul said. There is no distinction All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Maybe you feel alone right now. And maybe the answer that God is providing is for you to come clean. To repent and step inside of His light. To meet the friends of Jesus. When we allow God inside, we become new people. There's no place for boasting in a gospel-centered church. I mean, what are we going to boast in in ourselves? The only place of boasting in a gospel-centered church is in Christ. We, we stop comparing ourselves to one another because we realize that Jesus is our only hope. None of us are getting into heaven by being better than someone else. I mean, how could we even think that, really? When we really boil it down, really? We're getting into heaven by receiving the finished work of Christ on the cross. And that is an offer he makes to all. You know, the devil would love for us to live in a constant state of comparison. And, I mean, if he can do that, he can keep us far from God and the gospel. He doesn't care if we're sinning our way out of heaven or if we're obeying our way out of heaven. He just doesn't want us there. He can use pride just as well as he can use guilt. But God calls all to humility because before him we all fall short. But in him we're all one. Righteous in Christ. A church can be a place of constant one-upmanship where no one is safe. Or it can be a place of constant safety where everyone no matter how sinful and lowly, can find the Savior who died for them. Which do you want? 
As Pastor Tim Keller says, the church is not a museum for pristine saints, but a hospital ward for broken sinners. Let me just tell you, I'm a broken sinner. No righteousness is my own. What if we just all admitted that and stepped into the light of Jesus together? Today and tomorrow and for as long as the Lord has us here. When God gathers a group of people and those people open their hearts before him and by his grace keep them open, nothing about anybody surprises us anymore. (laughs) We realize that we're one before the cross of Christ, sinners in need of a Savior, which leads us to our third and final point. The gospel proclaims salvation in Christ alone, so we should too. We're not looking anywhere else but to Jesus. Look again at verses 23 through 26. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, since there is no distinction in terms of sin, there is therefore no distinction in terms of salvation. We're not going to be in Christ and find that someone else somehow got in another way. There's only one way, by faith. We are saved through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. No one is higher. No one is lower. No one is more saved than another. That person that you have in your life that you think, oh man, if I could only be like them, they are so godly. Do you know how Jesus looks at them? If you're in Christ... The same way. It was him that saved them. Just as he saved you. In Christ we're equally saved. Now how does that salvation occur? Paul uses three words to explain it. Justification, redemption, propitiation. All great theological words. We could spend, I don't know, the rest of the year on those three words. And only scratch the surface. Justification, that's a courtroom metaphor. It means God has declared us righteous, forgiven, acquitted of our crimes against him for the sake of Christ, given freely by his grace. We didn't earn it. God gave it. God forgave us. He set us right because, why? Why did God do that? Because he looked inside of us and saw something worthy of it? No but because he wanted to. Out of his free heart of grace and love. And Christ earned that for us in his life, death, and resurrection. God looks at you, all who are in Christ, and says, you are free. It's not only as if Uh, God is forgiving us of our sins, though that is wonderfully true. But because we are in Christ, it's as if we have never even disobeyed. That's how he views us. 
That's justification. Now, redemption is a word that reaches far back into the Old Testament. It means a a release from captivity. It's like what God did for Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. Our redemption is where? It's in Christ Jesus. We're redeemed because God put us in Christ and carried us out of sin by his death and resurrection. Propitiation. That's a great theological word. I heard one person say, if you want to keep drilling down into the, you know, the, what's the most important book, passage, so on, this is the most important word in the most important paragraph, in the most important book of the most important book. Propitiation. Tim Keller says it means the Lord pays the debt to justice himself. I love that. You see, we, we owe God something. <laughs> We have sinned. We have fallen short. We have taken what he has given and said, no thanks, and gone our own way. We owe a debt. Who's going to pay it? The gospel says God does in himself. What we owe to God, God pays on our behalf in himself, in the person of his son. God both offers the sacrifice and accepts the sacrifice. Christ's death satisfies God's wrath. It meets his just requirements for sin. And it offers the free gift of salvation to all who believe. (laughs) There's some logic there, isn't there? The gospel is not an irrational concept. It is a very logical, well-thought-out plan of salvation. Here's the logic of the gospel. All sinned and stood hopeless before God, but Jesus paid the penalty for those sins by his substitute's death. In other words, he stood in our place, did what we could not, died our guilty death, and paid the wrath of God. Now all who believe in his finished work are saved through him. That was a plan all along. Way back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, God promised that day to send a Savior. That promise is just reiterated throughout the Bible. That's so important for us to see. God doesn't ignore the sins of his people. He pays for them with Christ's blood. God is both just and the justifier. He forgave sins in the past because Jesus was coming to set it all right. And he did. God doesn't forgive by overlooking our sin. God forgives by Jesus coming to pay for our sin. He forgives us by fulfilling the law in Christ and offering his perfection for our imperfection. At the cross, Jesus suffered what we deserved in our place. On the cross, Jesus exchanged our sin for Christ's obedience, for his righteousness. Our moral debt was paid in full. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he meant it. Theologian P.T. Forsyth puts it well. The prime doer in Christ's cross was God. Christ was God reconciling. He was God doing the very best for man and not man doing his very best for God. And in verse 24, Paul calls this a gift. 
Now, what do you do with a gift? Do you boast in it as if you purchase it yourself? I mean, even it's gift by very definition. Did you earn that? No. What do you do with a gift? You receive it. I mean, I hope you do. You receive it and you rejoice in it. I mean, think of a kid at Christmas, a, a gift placed in his hands. He didn't earn it. He just woke up that morning and there it was waiting for him. And he just tears the paper and there it is in all its glory, whatever it is. There it is. For my 10-year-old, it's this, I don't know, autographed Ronald Acuna Jr. baseball. There it is. His mouth falls open. His eyes grow big. And he's speechless. He can't believe he has this. And slowly he just, he starts smiling, realizing what's just happened. He's beholding the gift. And then he just starts rejoicing in it. He shows it off to everyone in the room as if they didn't just watch him open it. He can't get over it. He's just floored. Thanksgiving pours out of his heart. What else can he do? That's who we are when the salvation of Christ is given to us. We're overwhelmed with gratitude. We didn't deserve this. We couldn't find this. We couldn't achieve this. But now, somehow, it's ours. So here we are at the end of my sermon. And I've said a lot of things. And it's all for me really to say just this one thing. All that we must do to maintain and cultivate a gospel-centered church here at Refuge is just to never, ever, ever get over the fact that we are saved. <laughs> to never get bored with the gospel. To never let the scandal of salvation wear off. To just enjoy that gift together. To hold it up, to look at it, to see it from this angle and this angle and this angle and this angle. To turn it around, to pass it over, to share it, to talk about it, to discuss it, to enjoy it, to revel in it. My friend Jared Wilson says, what every believer in every age is challenged to do is to resist the innate compulsion to flatten out the expansive love of God. We love to do that, don't we? We flatten it. <laughs> but God cannot be flattened. He will not be flattened. The gospel is big and deep, wide and expansive, rich and glorious. The gospel never gets old. It never goes out of style. There is grace for every need, mercy for every sin, forgiveness for every sinner, redemption for everything broken, restoration for everything taken, glory for anyone who comes. The further we go in, the bigger Jesus' gospel gets. It's like the ocean. We haven't seen the bottom of it yet. So let's keep going. Moment by moment, together. Let's see how far Jesus can take us. Let's go find the gospel deeps. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that the gospel is true. We thank you that salvation is offered freely to sinners like us. That all we have to do is trust you to step inside of your light to receive your gift. 
Lord, I pray that we never get over that. We never grow tired of the wonder of the gospel, that we reject the desire to flatten the gospel, that we enjoy it. Because it's from you, it's of you, it brings us to you. And you are all that we need. So Father, we thank you. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.